Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome back to the Guardian Mindset Podcast. I'm attorney Eric Daigle, and I'm honored today to have Dr. Paul Taylor, a good friend, a colleague, uh, um, and actually uh, my instructor. I like to always use that because he's the only one. I think he actually got me to do more work in advanced, advanced specialist class than I actually did in law school. Paul, what you may not know is that we like to start every podcast off with a quote. And you're going to have to feel honored here because your quote actually came from Chief Charles Reynolds. So Chief Reynolds sent me a quote last week and he said, this is perfect for Paul. And it's by a Dr. Nitya Prashkas, P-R-A-K-A-S-H, where she says, everyone makes, everyone makes mistakes in life, but that doesn't mean they have to pay for them for the rest of their life. Sometimes good people make bad choices. It doesn't mean they're bad people. It just means they're human. And I think the benefit of that is that, you know, most of your work is on human performance and human factors. And, and uh, so first, I'm going to talk to you about your background for a second, but I wanted to say welcome, Paul. How are you? Hey, Eric. Thank you so much. And I, I don't know what I'm more uh, honored by, the fact that I made work harder than, than you did in law school or the fact that Charlie Reynolds came up with a quote for me. So uh, I'm, uh, I'm humbled. Uh, I would it, go with the Charlie Reynolds thing, by the way. I think that's it. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you for having me, Eric, and, and thank you for the work that you're doing. It's it's always an honor to talk with you and honor to be here with you. Well, Paul Taylor uh, was just uh, one of our keynote instructors at the USA Force Summit and was uh, was responsible for the force investigation track and bringing some amazing instructors. You know, the good thing that I will say, and hopefully by now those of you on the podcast will start to realize that um, what I would what I think is unique to our little force world is that the experts in the industry, uh, everybody with their own different uh, tract and, and expertise, um, I think we're very successful because uh, we just don't we just don't put up with each other. We actually like each other. We actually collaborate with each other and we try to we try to make it better. But Dr. Paul Taylor is currently the assistant professor in the School of Public Affairs at the University of Colorado, Denver, where he studies decision making, human performance and system safety in the context of use of force encounters. Um, I met Dr. Taylor when he was the lead instructor for force science in the certification course and especially the advanced specialist course. Um, but I think like a lot of our, uh, our guests, Paul, what you bring to the table is, um, that you've walked the talk, you not only talk to talk, but you've walked the walk. And that is, um, he's spent a, a decade just like myself in practical law enforcement, um, practice in, in holding responsibility in departments as a training manager, a patrol sergeant, a use of force instructor is post certified in Colorado. And, and I think, um, that's reason why a lot of us get along really well is because we never forget where we came from. So Paul, uh, first of all, welcome and uh, happy to have you and happy to have spent many times over the last uh, five or six years teaching with you. But um, please, could you introduce yourself to the audience and tell them about your career, including your law enforcement career up to here? Sure, absolutely, Eric, and thank you for that introduction. Um, so again, my name is Paul Taylor. Uh, I have about 10 years of practical law enforcement experience. Uh, I, I'm one of those guys that got done with high school and had no idea what he wanted to do with his life. And so I, I walked into a recruiter's office and I said, I don't care what I do. I just want to get out of here. And uh, so I was a recruiter's dream. I uh, ended up uh, working in naval law enforcement uh, for, for a period of time. 
I got to the end of my four-year enlistment and, and I was in the same predicament I was after high school. I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. And so I had been a cop in the Navy and I thought, why not be a cop on the outside? So I started applying to agencies right away and, and I got in with Riverside County Sheriff's Department um, and I, I got started in my career. I, I was loving what I was doing. I was, I was young. I was 23 years old, probably too young to be engaged in this profession at that time, at least for my level of maturity uh, at that time <laughs> in my life. Um, and, and so, but I, I loved it. Um, and, and around that same time, my dad got a, a terminal diagnosis and, and I made a really hard decision to go, uh, go take care of him over the last few years of his life. And so I, I got out of law enforcement for a period of time, uh, by the way, you should always put your family first and, and I don't regret that at all. No, um, you shouldn't regret I, it. It's probably the best decision you made, Paul. Yeah. The time I spent with my father was, was really important to me. Got back into law enforcement in 2008. Um, and, and, uh, small department, University of Colorado, Boulder police department, uh, moved up very quickly in that department, became a, a you know, a field training officer at one point, uh, then a patrol sergeant. I was a use of force instructor. And ultimately I was a training manager for my department. And it was around this time that I, I was exposed to force science and some other kind of influences looking at human factors, both in policing and outside of policing. Um, and it really blew my mind. You know, I, I, I tell classes when I'm teaching that, you know, I walked out of my first four science class and I was I was angry. And, and that was really true. But there was multiple exposures to that. And it came from the field of medicine, it came from the field of law enforcement. And I started to look at how other professions looked at both bad outcomes and, and kind of performance. And, and I realized that law enforcement really was stuck kind of in this um, mode of looking at outcomes and preparing for bad outcomes that comes from the industrial revolution, really tailorism and yeah. looking at behaviorism as, as, you know, if we just tell people to do better uh, and if we just train them right, they ultimately will. And one of the issues with that, and one of the things that I quickly learned is that people are people, right? And ultimately we work in the people business. Uh, and, and so, you know, you can recruit the best people in the world. You can train them at the highest level. You can have the best policies in place, but people um, are subject uh, to, to certain behaviors. And we know that people in similar situations with similar training experience tend to respond in similar ways. And so if we don't start kind of changing the way we look at things, we're bound to repeat outcomes. And so as I was looking at that, and as I was, I was, as I was kind of studying that, uh, I had an opportunity to kind of revamp my training program. And, and you know, then politics of the department got in the way and, and influences got in the way. And we ended up back at minimum standards. And for me, that was, that was devastating. It let me know that, you know, within this department at the rank of a sergeant and, and training manager, I really wasn't going to be able to make the changes that, that I thought were necessary for the profession to really move forward. And so made the decision to go and pursue my PhD. I worked on my PhD at the university of, at Albany state university of New York. Uh, it's in criminal justice, but my focus of research is on police decision-making, human factors, and system safety in the context of police contacts with the public, and really looking at those systemic influences that, that drive a lot of the outcomes that we see. Uh, since then, I've had an opportunity to uh, kind of start teaching and, and training all over, all over the country and, and different parts of the world, um, have an opportunity to produce uh, research on things like dispatch priming, uh, looking at how to engineer resilience into our responses so that when officers do find themselves in a bad position, it doesn't necessarily end in a bad outcome. Uh, and looking at ways uh, that, you know, not only do we look at the 
these incidents after the fact, but how do we learn from the incidents that we do have in policing and how do we improve policing going forward? Um, been blessed to work with people like you, like Jamie Borden with a critical incident review, uh, like uh, the Force Science Institute and, and some of the great people that, that work there. Uh, and so um, I've, I've had great mentorship. I've had great friendships. Uh, and I'm very, very lucky to be in the position that I'm in. Well, I mean, what I think is key and that I really want to focus on for you in this short time we have with you is, is you know, the study of human factors and, and you know, applying science to our job and something that is, uh, is amazing how we consider it to be so valuable and most people don't uh, consider it to be valuable. And, um, and one of the things that I want to, you know, want to point out as we go along and I'll say it now and then again at the end so people can remember is, um, that there is uh, that you have produced a lot of great material and um, in you know one of your you're my go-to for training our investigators on on cognitive interviewing and human factor analysis and in in uh, the important parts of that you also have a nonprofit called uh, the Association of Force Investigators you want to tell us about that Sure. The Association of Force Investigators, one of the things that I noticed, and this is while I was working with force science, is, is really the need for continuing education. A lot of us that get involved in force investigations or even the, the review or adjudication of use of force cases, oftentimes we, we, we come from a, you know, a, a background where we're very good at what we do uh, in a specific context. But police use of force investigations are very different. They're very different from a legal standpoint. They're very different from the, the factors that we need to uh, examine in these cases. Uh, and officers are really unique in the criminal justice system. Um, oftentimes, you know, people advocate that they're treated a specific way um, and that that's very similar to other cases. But the fact of the matter is, just from a memory standpoint, from a, from a, a recollection standpoint, they really are unique uh, in, in the criminal justice system. And so we need specialized training in police use of force investigations. Um, and, and for a couple of reasons, we need it because uh, we want uh, the best data possible for these investigations. We want to be able to adjudicate them at a high level to hold our agencies and our officers accountable for both the good things and the bad things that, right. that, that happen, uh, but also uh, so that we can learn and improve going forward. And, and that takes a, a very special mindset and, a, and a, a different approach. And so really the purpose of the Association of Force Investigators is to provide a continuing education platform, a platform where both research and ideas can be exchanged uh, it can be a very isolating position. Uh, and so that's that's the idea behind it. The membership is is growing substantially and we're looking forward to to continuing that going into the future. Yeah, and I, I thank you for the opportunity to be amongst uh, the group that I would consider to be the best of the best as uh, and the group of advisors for AFI. And I, I think that the literature out there is uh, is very important. Um, and, you know, it, it was great to have you at the Use of Force Summit, and it was just great to be able to see everybody and, uh, and feel that energy, which is just like you and me. We've been doing online training, not that this podcast helps because it's only audio, but, but the online training, boy, it's getting, it was getting a little difficult there for a while, and nobody laughs at my jokes anymore, Paul. I mean, it's not even Jake and Sean. They don't even laugh anymore. They just go, oh, here it comes, crappy joke. Uh, so we were getting a little old in that situation. So it was great to see you. Yeah, it was fantastic. And, and what a great uh, 
format. I mean, you've been doing it for a while now, Eric, for I think 10 years now. Uh, and, and man, it's a, it's amazing to see it grow, but the opportunity to come together, uh, to see the tracks expand, it's, it's been, it's been fantastic. And I agree with you online training. It's been awful, especially for the instructors you bring in. I don't know how you cage Kevin Dillon, uh, or guys like me to a, a small, uh, five by five box while we're presenting on online. It's just an uh, electronic control weapon. That's how, that's the way, that's the way we do it. Um, so at the summit and kind of looking at, and like you could talk about so many important topics and I really just wanted to see if I could, it's really, I think the hardest part for any of us in this world is like, when you tell me you have 15 minutes to talk about something, you're like, I can't even say my name in 15 minutes. But what I wanted to do is, um, your, your class at the summit, your keynote was applying human factors to force investigators and, and maybe even change the name a little bit because, what I would ask you is, um, you know, what advice would you give uh, a young officer or more importantly, a, a young supervisor that is supervising a use of force incident? And so, um, you know, I, I just want to give you an opportunity to go through and kind of focus on if you had an officer, a young supervisor sitting in front of you and they're like, listen, Paul, I heard this human factor thing. I think it's important. Um, what, what, what would you give them as advice for the knowledge growth of how important and what is human factors? Well, uh, and I think I, I'm going to approach the young officer and the young supervisor slightly different. I like that. Let's split them up. Yeah, let's put them up a little right. bit. But for the young officer, um, I think I, I would encourage them not to stop with their basic training um, and the training available uh, in their education. Um, that, that's what I would start with. I, I would start with um, trying to educate yourself as much as possible, both about how human beings interact um, how, how timeframes interact, uh, but don't stop with the, with the minimum standards in training, um, continue to seek out training wherever you can get it and improve your practice, improve the way that you, you do things. And, and that's, that's going to improve things like your reaction time, uh, your ability to read the situation. So, so think about how a, a basketball player develops, you know, my son just started playing basketball and right now. Um, he's got to focus all of his attention on how to dribble the ball, right? He's looking down and he's watching his hands move and he's getting it down and he's very proud of himself. But if I insert him into a game, the first thing that's going to happen is someone's going to run up and smack the ball away from him because he's not paying attention to the things that he needs to pay attention to. And so it's critically important as officers that we train our skill sets to the point of, of automaticity, not so that it's automatic, an automatic response. So, but so that we can focus our attention outward and we can read situations better. Uh, when we look at things like some of the taser confusion issues, when we look at things like, um, you know, uh, the dynamic situations changing as officers are, ma are making decisions, some of that we can't control. Some of that's outside of our control. We know that people make mistakes. But at the same time, if we want to improve decision making, we've got to be able to focus our attention downfield. And again, if going back to that sports analogy, if you can... If you can see the field, if you can read what's happening in front of you, you're going to start to improve your outcomes. And then the other thing that I would just say to new officers is start to understand the process that occurs after a critical incident. Don't wait until a critical incident occurs to you to start preparing for that. Um, and the other side to that is the interview process that's going to come for an officer during these, during these that is your opportunity to give your account. Now, and it's and you should understand how to give your account in those types of situations. And and again, this is going to be different for different departments. They approach it differently. They ask different types of questions. 
learn how your department approaches that and also learn how to give an account that's going to be detailed enough for us to analyze this case after the fact. Right. Here's the thing that I know. If there are gaps, an attorney's going to find a narrative to fill that gap. If you're able to give your account and 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 less is not more. That is just not true anymore. Oh, you mean the old um, school and the sergeant says don't put too much in your report. That's not that's not a good idea. Well, Eric, I'll ask you as an attorney, what, is, what are you going to fill that gap with? You're going to fill that gap with the narrative that suits your case. And this is your opportunity as an officer to, to give your account of what occurred. Um, and that account is not going to be uh, reflective of what actually occurred out there. It's, it's just not. We understand that. It is going to be your account. Uh, and so you need, to, you need to understand how to give that account, how to give a very detailed account, um, and, and, and to feel comfortable understanding that it's not going to match the video evidence. It's not going to match the objective facts of the case. This is your account and nobody else can give that. Uh, it's your it's, perception. I mean, it's your perception of what occurred. And, and we need that. Um, we're, we're very blessed to have had uh, uh, Supreme Court justices who are actually reading human factors literature when they when they made decisions about Graham v. Connor, um, and and when that those uh, when those opinions were written, uh, and so with that understanding that that we're actually looking at this from an objective, reasonable position, and nobody can tell us what you were thinking except for you during that incident. Um, uh, it's critically important to understand that when you're when you're going into that. Yeah, um, that's that's and that's not that's can't be more clear than the latest Supreme Court case in Lombardo, which which in June 28th, 2021, which said it's, you know, facts and circumstances matter, you know, your threat assessment matters, the need for force versus the force used, that analysis, active resistance, that matters. And, and, and so I agree with you 100% on that. Let me ask you this, though, for the officer side. So we use the term human factors. And just because, you know, I was thinking about this as you were saying it, like you and I, just use that firm term like it's a verb, not an adjective. But what 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 is a human factor for an officer that may just be tuning in for the first time and hearing that term? But yeah, and that's really interesting. So the study of human factors really separates out kind of psychology and the way that an individual interacts with their tools, their tasks, and their work environment. And human factors are very specific to, to work, right? So uh, we've got human factors in nursing, in aviation, uh, in oil and gas. And what we're looking at in human factors is how people interact with those tools, those tasks, and that environment to produce outcomes outside of just themselves, right? Bigger, bigger outcomes uh, than just themselves. Uh, and, and really, that's, that's where the study of human factors um, came from. It, it really came out of uh, aviation during World War II. Uh, a man by the name of Alfonso Champanis uh, was looking at how pilots interact with their cockpits and how that was producing that interaction was producing uh, some unexplained and, and bad outcomes. And aviation has used human factors to dramatically improve their safety, uh, along with healthcare and, and, and these other fields. And, and really, they've, they've started to uh, take more of a systems perspective on, on how these things occur. Uh, so people, uh, above and beyond themselves, really are, are, tend to be a product of, of their environment. And the example that I use is, is you know, you can, you can go into a DMV just about anywhere in the country and you're going to get about the same level of service. You're going to have kind of the same, you're going to have kind of the same uh, outcomes. And I could take the most well-intended person and drop them into a DMV. 
Um, and after a period of time, they're not going to change the DMV. The DMV is going to change them, right? And, and so really the, the, the outcomes that we get from the DMV are a product of the type of service that the people give in that environment, uh, the restrictions and, and the limitations to those. To those and, and then the pressure of, of so many people coming in uh, so often. And so what we see is we see a, a very standardized product that comes out of that. Well, we have those types of interactions in policing. And it's not to say that, that it's always the same. In fact, it's very different. But we have systemic influences in policing that tend to produce consistent outcomes. And it's not every time. But for instance, uh, again, it's in the news right now, taser confusion shootings. There are circumstances under which that becomes much more likely. Um, and because of the way that uh, the, the tools are designed and the way that op the officers interact uh, during uh, particular situations, uh, it can produce that outcome. And so those are the types of things that we'd want to look at. We also look at things like timing, how time impacts decision making and impacts outcomes um, and how much time we have. Uh, we look at things like uh, decision making within the work environment and the constraints of the work environment. How does policy change that? Um, how does different situations change that? We'll get misdiagnosis, you know, how a situation that's presenting one way, and in fact, it's something else entirely, how does that change decision-making? It, it's, like it's always amazing to me, Paul, and I know you do a lot of expert witness work and in, in interaction with different entities, and, and one of the things that is amazed to me is that, that when people look at use of force incidents, they're almost as if they're making the officers robots, that every officer is going to respond the exact same way to stimuli, and everyone's going to see the same stimuli, and that every officer's action and reaction time is going to be equal. And the one thing that we know, and you know because that's, you're the expert in that area, is that they're not, the, the, every, every human being is, is a human being that has different levels of human error. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, and, and uh, people people are going to respond to situations uh, a, a, a little bit differently, and the circumstances are going to be a little bit different. It's it's critically important to understand all of those things. You know, the the thing about hindsight is that we're always going to see what an officer could or should have done during an incident. That's right. that's always going to be clear. Right. Um, what what the key to understanding is in these investigations is what an officer was aware of and and what it meant to them in the moment. And again, this is why. Officer statements are so important. It's it's heartbreaking to go across the country and and and, and to learn that a lot of officers are, are no longer giving statements at all. Um, and so again, that's very risky. That that is risky. Um, and, and so what we're relying on then is we're relying on the investigators and the deciders of facts to um, make assumptions about what the officer's state of mind was and, and the reasons that they made the decisions that they did. Sometimes that's really obvious, right? Sometimes there's a clear threat and, and we can say, well, this is why the officer made the decision. But again, it's just a guess. Yeah. Um, most of us that have worked in scenario-based training have, have had situations where an officer has performed beautifully. Uh, and we ask them after the fact, well, why'd you do what you did? And they'll tell us their account, we'll say, no. No, that's awful. They made the decision on the side. And, and then on the other side of it, you'll see somebody do something completely outside of the box. And, and you, you'll, you'll be thinking, what is that officer thinking? And you'll sit them down and you'll ask them and they'll, they'll give you a reason. You'll say, wow, yeah, I never even thought of that before. That's a viable solution to this situation. And so until we start to understand that, we really can't look at behavior and say, uh, that officer made the decision for the right reasons, for the wrong reasons. We really need to understand what they perceived in the moment, what they were looking at, what was important to them. Um, and, and, um, and unless we do, um, we're really just guessing. 
So I'm afraid to not ask the next question because if I do it wrong, or you might take away my advanced specialist degree. Um, but the key for me is trying to drill it down to the lowest common denominator. And, and one of the things that I find interesting, and I'd like your take on it if possible, and that is, you know, um, you and I spend a lot of our time looking at threat assessment and articulation of that, that, that spidey sense that, that something was wrong. What is it? Tell us what it is. What can a young officer do to focus on doing a better job of articulating the threat assessment, the opportunity, ability, intent, however they receive their training, so that when it comes time for that critical incident, um, they are properly trained for it? Or what can a training officer do to help make that better? Yeah, one of the things that we've seen both in research and, and in empirical cases is that time is, is a critical aspect of that. Most people, and, and this is not universal, but most people are trying to make the best decision they possibly can. They don't want to misread a situation. They don't want to, they don't want to uh, hurt, you know, injure somebody that, that doesn't, uh, hasn't done anything wrong. And so when they're, when they're looking at these, when they're looking at these situations, time really improves decision-making and wherever we can build some time into our decision-making process, even fractions of a second, uh, we can, we can dramatically improve, we can dramatically improve outcomes. In the laboratory environment, we can improve outcomes um, by by 50% uh, in shoot no shoot scenarios, just with fractions of a second of time and the and opening up your visual workspace and being able to see things. And so officers, it's police work is dangerous. There, there's no way to get around that. And the other side to that is officers are gonna find themselves in in, in situations. Um, uh, that are that are not good. They're going to find themselves out of position. They're going to misdiagnose situations. They're going to think somebody um, is is safe when in fact they intend harm, or they're going to think that somebody intends harm when in fact they they don't. And so, where we can build in more decision time into our contacts, whether that's simply by just slightly lowering your muzzle when you're dealing with somebody who's ambiguously armed, um, just that fraction of a second in a simulated environment dramatically improves outcomes. Um, things like uh, slowing down our approach, uh, having people sit down so it takes a little bit more time for them to, to step anywhere where you can build time into that decision-making environment, uh, you you improve outcomes. Um, and, and having an understanding of the limitations of, of some of the tools we use. Uh, it takes 4.5, well, 4.7 seconds for an officer to transition from their firearm to their taser. It takes 2.5 seconds for them to go the other way. That's a significant period of time. So how do we how do we engineer some resilience into that response? You know, we I I see a lot of videos where officers deploy less lethal fairly early in in an encounter. One of the things we should count on is that less lethal, no matter what it is, is going to change behavior, just not the way we think it will. And if we if we engineer our response in a way that accounts for that that doesn't count on less lethal being successful, I think we could dramatically improve outcomes. So little ways that we can start to engineer some resilience into our response so that when we're surprised by what does occur in front of us, where we find ourselves slightly out of position or we've misread a situation, it doesn't result in catastrophe for ourselves or the people that we're dealing with. Yeah. And, and, you know, the critical incident response and the after action review, you know, People do, they write use of force reports as a normal course of their duty and 
and they just do it that way and they don't you know we're not we're not forcing them to really use that as learning experience to write better use of force reports and in, in in that regard and i would separate that out entirely i what and i used to do this too right when i write my report if it was a low level use of force it would just be written into my standard narrative of my of my report and halfway through my career i think the use of uh, the specialized use of force reporting form started coming out and we started writing it on that, but really it was just the, the same thing. And we need to look at these things differently because those accounts and those low level uses of force can oftentimes turn into something a year, two years down the line where we're, we're now having to testify on an in-custody death or an injury that occurred uh, during a low level use of force. And so, and, and you're right, it is an opportunity for us to really learn how to start articulating uh, the circumstances that led to led to force. Uh, and we need to treat that separately, right? So we we have our standardized, typically template format that we use for our criminal reports. And that works for our criminal reports, but we need to look at this use of force reporting as separate. Uh, and we need to get outside of this, this habit of kind of reporting in, in a very standardized way and really get into the details right. of what it is that we saw and why we made the decisions that we made. Um, getting beyond saying, um, you know, I felt that his arm was stiff and so I, I proceeded to assist him to the ground. No, we need to describe exactly what it is that we did and why it is that we did what we did, what we were seeing, uh, even what we were tasting, smelling, why we were making the decisions that we made. And, and all of those things play into those decision-making processes. Uh, I, again, I, I don't think less is more when we're talking about our decision-making uh, for, for use of force. We need to understand why the officer made the decision that the officer made in the moment. Yeah, I mean, you and I agree on that. and and. I see it all the time, especially strong union areas and, and where, you know, don't tell too much, don't put too much down. Well, this is use of force. Facts and circumstances and threat assessment is the decision making. And, and, you know, you need, you only get one chance to do this. And I love the way you said, if you don't, if you don't, if you leave gaps, we're going to fill it in. That's the key. So I think You're, I, go ahead. Sorry. No, it's your opportunity to tell your story. And, and I would even encourage you that if you're sitting down across from an investigator and they're interviewing you and they're taking you. So I look at this investigators are trying to construct their case. They're going after things that are important to them. You, you, you have every opportunity as somebody who's being, who's giving your account of this statement to stop them and say, listen, can I just give my account? And then you can ask me any question that you want, but let, let me, me get tell my, my story. Let me tell my story. Right. Um, and, and, and really, when we talk about things like accountability, which, which is you know, a buzzword that's going around uh, across the country right now with policing, what is true accountability? And, and I would argue that it's the ability to give account. And we have to create an environment in which officers have the ability to give their account and tell their story. Uh, and really, it falls back on the officer because a lot of investigators aren't trained that way. They're trained to approach a case from a constructive standpoint to build their case. They're going after the things that they believe are important to them. You need to tell your story about what was important to you in the moment so that after the fact, it's not somebody else filling in a narrative about why you made the decision. We have the reasons why you made the decision in front of us um, and we're able, to, we're able to assess those things. That's awesome. And I think, so you were on a great, Tangent with the officer, and I think I interrupted you before you switched over to the, what would you tell the young supervisor, the one that, that has to review the force report or do the force investigation, may not have a lot of skill sets uh, on how to do that. They're just a part of the process, and it, clearly they don't realize how important 
that documentation aspect is? Well, I think it's critically important to understand that an officer's account is very, very different than the objective facts of the case in the video. Uh, and we need to understand that these are different pieces of evidence. The video shows a perspective of the event, and oftentimes it's a very accurate perspective of the event. But an officer's account is just as important, and the officer's account is often that, that perspective that we can't capture anywhere else. And so we need to keep from tainting that. We need to keep from tainting that both with our questions and with um, by, by showing them the video, by exposing them to other information, allow them to give their account. So that's, that's one aspect. The other aspect I tell young supervisors, educate yourself. Educate yourself on how human beings react to the type of situations that your officers face out on the street. It's critically important to understand how people make decisions in that environment. Oftentimes we look at these cases and we're thinking about it in terms of rational decision-making. And, and we're saying, well, this person was, you know, uh, rationally thinking about what level of force to use in reaction to this. And we're talking about a time frame of, of less than a second. And there's not, there's yeah. not rational processing in that time frame. Uh, any kind of training to get somebody to that level has occurred long before now. And somebody's simply reacting to what's happening in front of them. And, and so, again, we have to be careful about inserting rationa rationality into situations in which officers are making decisions at, at, at close to a subconscious level at, at times. Um, and, and their memory of that event is going to be impacted by that. Um, and, and again, I'll go back to a sports analogy. A basketball player is not thinking about dribbling. And if you're asking them about the specific dribbling techniques that they used as they were involved in a game, you're asking about something that they were doing at largely a subconscious level. What they're going to be able to tell you about is what the defensive players were doing or the opportunities that they saw uh, emerging on the court and how they took advantage of that. They're not going to be able to tell you about the specific skill sets. And that's not a bad thing. That's actually saying that, hey, that person's focus of attention was exactly where it should have been. Right. Um, but we can't ask them to account for things that they wouldn't necessarily be aware of. And so I, uh, for the young supervisor, I would say, educate yourself on how people make decisions in the type of environments that your officers face. So that as you're evaluating uh, a, a use of force or as you're reporting a use of force, you have some understanding about, about um, some of the phenomena that you're seeing and, and why you might see gaps in reporting and things like that. It's not to say that people don't lie, people do lie, um, and certainly have seen situations in which officers are trying to cover things up. And, and what we see is that the human factors uh, can be used to demonstrate that uh, just as readily and just as easily as they can be to demonstrate when an officer uh, is being truthful uh, in these types of events. Yeah, I can't say it better. So when I was thinking about all the all the hundreds of topics I would love to go over with you in a very short period of time, um, I realized, and you kind of hit on it already, I think the one that's the most valuable to the men and women, and we'll start with this caveat because it's a necessary caveat, which is we're going to give you our opinions, but you have to make your own opinion so you know where I'm going with this because we've done this enough times. Um, Paul and I and Grant Fredericks and Dr. Lewinsky, we've all issued very strong opinions as to the video and watching video before giving a statement or doing a use of force report. And uh, I've written multiple art articles on it and Paul has, has, test, has uh, instructed multiple times on this. And I want to get his, you know, Paul, you know, from my philosophy that I think that the legal aspect of Graham versus Connor requires the officer's perception and that what I'm smart enough to know is that if I'm watching a video, that's not the officer's perspective. And the big, the big science questions 
that I learned from you and Dr. Lewinsky in the aspect of what we don't know is what really happens to a memory when, uh, when we watch the video. There's enough science out there to say it has some effect. But the officers that are listening to this, you know, are probably expecting, hey, I should watch the video because I should know what the video says because if I don't say exactly what the video says, somebody's going to say I'm a liar and then they're going to they're going to they're going to accuse me of lying and I'm going to lose my credibility. So if you just give a little bit of your scientific application on that so that the officers can take that into consideration when making their decision. Yeah, and and unfortunately the officers aren't entirely wrong. So there are jurisdictions that will hold the true. I I got to admit that. Yes, that's true. This is an and this is an education piece, but ideally we want that officer's perspective. We want to understand what that officer was seeing, what they were feeling, um, why they made the decisions that they made in in the moment. And and that's not to say, hey, I feared for my life. We again, I, if I never heard that statement again uh, for the rest of my life, I, I would be a very happy man. I don't, I don't want that. Yeah. What we want is what 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 was the officer perceiving? What did they see? What what did they feel? Why did they make the decisions that they made? What was important to them in that moment? And you can really only capture that uh, by by getting an officer's statement. Now, we know that immediately people start forgetting things after an event and contamination starts immediately. And, and here's the thing. If I lock somebody away in a dark room immediately after an event and they're just sitting there thinking the event, contamination's happening. They're, they're actually changing their memory. They're organizing their memory. They're trying to make sense of their memory. Contamination is happening. Now, if I show them a video, even if it's a video of their own body-worn camera that was mounted right on their chest, they're seeing the event through another set of eyes. They're not living the event in first person. They're looking at it in third person and they're seeing details that they didn't see in, in, in the meantime or, or they didn't see in, at the time. And in looking at the event, they're getting additional information. And sometimes they see a piece of information that they think after the fact, either consciously or subconsciously, I've got to explain that or they incorporate that in their memory and it ends up changing their statement. And, and listen, I have never... Uh, I have not seen an officer who gives a, a statement, a pure statement that didn't come from a video, get hung up on that statement. I have seen officers get hung up when they try to account for something in the video that wasn't part of their decision-making process at the time. And so what I would, what I would say is Graham B. Connor talks about that officer's perspective, what they perceived in the moment, what was important to them in the moment, why they made the decisions that they made, and then comparing that to the objectively reasonable standard, the objectively reasonable officer. If we're not capturing this piece, though, or if we're adding to this based on the video or trying to explain something that was not part of their decision-making process, we're opening ourselves up to issues. If it's a cut and dry case, it probably doesn't matter. But where we get into issues is where there's some aspect that the officer sees in the video that wasn't part of their decision-making process and they try and explain it or their attorney tells them to try and explain it after the fact um, and, and, and they get themselves in trouble. Your statement does not need the video to enhance it. Your statement was your perspective, right? And, and in fact, the, the video is just going to, to um, add confusion to that process. Uh, it's going to add uncertainty to that for the officer. Uh, and, it, and it's going to be problematic. Now, the department and the investigation may need to ask questions about the video, but I would get that initial statement as purely as possible at the very, very beginning and then allow the officer some time with his with his or her attorney to view the video, to talk about what 
you know, any, any issues that they see in that, and then ask them the questions that you need to ask them um, um, from a departmental or an investigative standpoint. Yeah. And, and, you know, the key, I, I find it amazing often where for some reason, video was the catalyst to this discussion, body worn cameras. We didn't have this issue when it was car cameras. Um, and, and what I say to people all the time is when a client calls me because they've been involved in an issue that is going to require that type of, of evaluation, I've learned enough from you all to know, listen, I don't want you reading text messages. I don't want you... I don't want you talking to people. I want you just wait, go sit in a corner and wait for me to get there. Um, because the one thing I do know, like you said, anything that happens post that incident is going to contaminate the memory. And, and for some reason, the video has become a catalyst to this conversation. But it's no different from having a conversation with your buddy who is standing next to you and says, wait, I didn't see that or I saw this and I saw that. And so the scientific aspect, there's no difference in those two, right? No, and you run into the same issues with walkthroughs and, and walkthroughs, okay. powerful context reinstatement. But the, my question to you, and, and, and this would go for the video as well, the question would be, well, what are you really trying to get out of the walkthrough or out of, out of an officer statement after viewing the video? If you're trying to get the two to align and match up, or if you're trying to learn what happened, that, that's great. That can be very, very helpful. But, but if you want to learn the officer's why, if you want to understand why the officer made the decision, getting that statement as purely as possible is, is, well, it has a couple of benefits. One, we're actually assessing what the officer's decision-making process was and what was important to them and what they saw as, as inaccurate or, or, or not as inaccurate, as, as um, far away from the uh, objective facts or the video actually was, we're getting that as purely as possible. And that's, right. that's important. The other side to that is, is that if we get the officer's statement and we haven't contaminated it, we just allow them to give their complete account of the event or as complete as they can of the event, it actually has an inoculating effect that uh, protects the officer's memory uh, to some degree and, and protect, protects against forgetting and protects against contamination. And so it, it benefits um, the, the investigation going forward and that officer's account going forward. If we're sitting there asking a bunch of questions, showing the officer the video, um, doing a walkthrough with the officer, we're inserting additional information into that memory at a subconscious level or and even sometimes at a conscious level. And so we have to be careful about that because we are changing that officer's memory of the event. All right. So, you know, I have to ask one difficult question in the process, right? That's the part of this interview aspect. So what I love about the fact, and I ask this for everybody, because you bring your law enforcement perspective, your, your, your doctoral, your, your academia perspective, but um, what would you identify or what would you consider to be one of the most significant developments in policing over, the, over your career to this point? Something that you can look back at and go, man, I neither either, either I expected that or I didn't expect that, but... But we try to stay positive, but what, what would you find something that is, has been a significant development? You know, I, I think the, the focus um, on, on police education has is, is been really positive. I think, I think as we look at police training and improving police training, uh, uh, that, that's moving in the right direction. There's still a lot of work to do. And, and oftentimes we're kind of, we're stuck in this framework that's been developed by our state post boards or, or uh, have been developed by uh, those that came before us. And, and I think that's the next 
that's the next direction we need to look at. We need to look at how do we, how can we improve um, uh, police training to the, to the, to the level of professionalism that we're expecting out of officers out on the street. Um, nursing went through that. It used to be that you came in, you did a short uh, training stint, and then you were on the job uh, nurse, with nursing and learning. Uh, and nursing has has had to change that. They've, they've gone to a four-year degree uh, in, order to, in order to become a, a, a registered nurse. And, and that move has professionalized nursing. Uh, and that's an important step that we need to be looking at, um, that we need to be looking at next. But I think the focus on training and improving training and bringing in uh, expertise from outside of policing to look at how adults learn and how to improve decision-making processes in dynamic environments uh, is one area that policing has dramatically improved um, even since I started uh, in, in 2001. Yeah, no, I'm, I've been doing this since 1992 and, you know, there wasn't, even though we had a long academy, you know, it was kind of the old concept of I need to know it, you'll tell it to me. And now we're in a world where people or officers are listening to this podcast, to the, which is not formal training. But I always I do appreciate that. And especially, you know, I, of all the you know, I've had a lot of guests on this and, you know, most of them and we all come with advanced degrees and and knowledge base. And, and one of the things we want to tell law enforcement is that. If we're going to be professional, we have to act professional. And that means we have to make it professional and that we have to challenge ourselves to, to, to do that. We like to say we're professional, but we don't like to give quizzes at the end of, of lectures. I mean, you can't, you can't have both, right? I mean, you know, how do we make this more professional? So I appreciate your, your take on that. Well, as we wrap up here, I'll give you, um, you know, one last opportunity to 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 uh, give your views to those that are out there and the men and women we're very thankful for that are out there every day doing the job and we're just trying to help them that's the key so any final thoughts in your world yeah i just take this opportunity to thank the men and women who are still willing to do this job in the current climate i i think i think we're turning a corner uh, as a country and i and i think we've, we've weathered the storm again uh through through another portion of this but the people who have stayed dedicated to this profession, the people who continue to do this profession, um, I'm a civilian now. And so I, I, I just want to thank you on behalf of my family, on behalf of my community for the work that you do every day. Um, it's because of you that I get to do what I do. Um, it's because of you uh, that that I feel comfortable sending my kids to school. Uh, it's because of you that 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 uh, my street is safe. Um, and so I I thank you uh, for for the sacrifices that you make because they are sacrifices. I thank you for um, your your professionalism and your willingness to put yourself um, and. Uh, and and your family on the line for what it is that that um we believe in as a country um and so thank you uh and and please uh continue to do the work that you're you know is right uh and as as best as we can we'll continue to support you uh and continue to find ways to uh, improve our profession so that we can do it even better i can't even say it any better than that nice job you know paul uh i love your passion and your professionalism and your you know there's not a lot of us that try to teach cops like human beings we don't we don't need to make them scientists we don't need to make them lawyers we just need to give them skill sets to do 
better and make better decisions uh, and go home at the end of the night and, and see their family. And so, you know, on behalf of DLG and everyone else, I thank you for your dedication and your passion um, to making this industry better. And uh, you truly are doing just that. Thank you, Eric. And so are you. Keep up the good work and, and thank you for having me on. Awesome. Well, I'll end as I always do. Protect those who need your protection. Help those who need your help. And most importantly, keep yourself and others safe. Thank you. Thank you.